Good morning, church family. It's just awesome to be able to worship uh, together today and sing and just praise our Savior and continue that by going into God's Word. And I'd just like to pray for us again. And uh, as I pray, I just want to ask you to pray. Don't just listen to me pray, but actually pray with me. Um, This is, every Sunday we get to gather is just a privilege that God would allow us to do this. And we encourage one another through singing like we just were doing. We, we're praising God, but as we're singing, we're encouraging the people around us through our singing, through our worship. And another way we do that is through praying. So as I pray, I just ask you to pray for your own heart that God just open your eyes to see Christ to the gospel uh, today and give you wisdom and even obedience to what he call you to do. But then to also pray for the person to your right, to your left. Um, even if you don't know who they are, they're a brother or sister in Christ, you can pray for them. And, and lastly, even pray for me in this moment that God just give me words of what to say. So would we just, let's pray together and then we're going to open God's Word. Father, we love you. We thank you for the truths that we've already heard. We thank you for the truths that we've sung flowing out of your Word, Father. And that song that we just finished singing, we pray it be true. You, you is true. You are great. Great are you, Lord. And so we ascribe to you worth. We, we give you glory this morning because you're worth it. May all glory and honor and praise, it belongs to you. And so we give you what we have. We pour out the breath that you have given us. We give it back as an act of praise this morning. I pray for myself and I pray for my friends and our church that we would be the people of God who live that way, that every breath we see is a gift and we worship before it, and then we give it back our time, our lives, our stuff, our finances, our kids, so that we would just give it back to you. It's an act of worship, laying ourselves, our lives, our things as an act of worship. Father, I pray that you do that in us. I pray that there'd be nothing greater known in this place except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We thank you for the truth that your word does not return void, that it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. We pray that it would accomplish its purpose in this room this morning pray that I would decrease. I pray that we would decrease and that you would increase. You'd be made gloriously beautiful this morning. We love you and it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. We're going to be in chapter 3 for uh, the majority of our time together, but chapter 4 helps set up chapter 3. And so this is where we're going to be. We've been walking through the story, and now we're post-Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And we began talking about looking to and toward Christ, the Old Testament. Now he's come and gone again. So now we're looking at the New Testament and the epistles especially, talking about what's it look like for us to live in light of Christ today. And this is just a beautiful passage that goes hand in hand with last week. If you were here in Gray or Johnson City, if we were in Galatians, uh, I think this complements so well. and It's going to be encouragement to your heart. So we're going to start um, in verse 1, but before I read that, I want, I want to set up what we're about to read. How many of you in this room, are just going to be completely honest, um, have ever had something or you've taken on something that you've given up on? 
Okay, anybody like start something and didn't make it to the end, be willing to admit it? Okay, a few of us are honest in this room. Uh, that's good. So we've, we all know what that's like. I've shared some of my stories uh, in, in times past with you guys. Uh, I had a one-season uh, football career back in middle school, and you probably look at me and say, yeah, I could see he could play football. He looks, you know, big, buff, and strong. Appreciate it. Well, back then, uh, I did only one season, and I was done. I, I quit. I was finished. It was over. Um, why? Because I didn't like being hit or hitting other people. So with football, especially as a lineman, that's just not a good thing. So it was like one season. I hated it. It was finished. I gave up. Um, you guys know it's December. January 1st comes next. New Year's resolutions. How many of you have had a resolution that you gave up on? Okay. Most of us. We've been there. Maybe it was to eat better, exercise more, and kind of let that go by the weight side. You know, you're like, I'm going to run five miles today, and then next week it's like, I'm just going to run to the refrigerator, you know, and that's about the best that it gets. Uh, we've done that. Maybe it's an eating diet plan that you like, you know, I'm going to eat kale every single day instead of Doritos, and you're like, I'm giving that up, going back to Doritos. It's not worth it kind of deal. Um, for those of you who are athletes, I don't know if you know who Eric Liddell is. He's an Olympian, Christian, many years ago, and uh, he said uh, that he knew God created him for a purpose, but God also created him to be fast. And when he would run, he said he would feel the pleasure of God when he ran, because God created him to do that. When I decide I'm going to go run, all I feel is pain. That's all I feel, and it's not about feeling the pleasure of God. It's about survival, and it's like I'm done with this. And there's been many times like I'm going to be this, but I'm not. I gave up. And in the Christian life, if we're going to be really honest, I want to ask you to raise your hands. Um, I would say many, if not all of us in the room who are Jesus followers, there have been points in in our lives where we felt like giving up. We felt disheartened whether it's from turning on the news and seeing terrorist attacks across the world, or here in the United States, a school shooting, whether it's seeing a Supreme Court ruling, whether it's seeing someone who's fighting against Christianity here in our country, whether it's because in your family you feel the brokenness of the fall in your life, sickness, cancer, loss of job, rebellion of a child, uh, betrayal of a friend, you feel the brokenness. Or maybe it's looking deep within your heart, you, you know the brokenness within you. Addiction, lust, anger, fear, bitterness, insecurity within you. When all those things start to come together in your life, sometimes as a Christian, you can begin to lose heart. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. Maybe you're headed into that season. And so this passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul gives us five words that just kind of change our perspective on this issue. So I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 with me. And it's one of those passages, if you've been reading this in the story, this verse will stop you in your tracks. It did for me. This is what it says. Therefore... Having this ministry, we'll talk about this ministry later, by the mercy of God, hear the five words, we do not lose heart. Therefore, having this ministry that God has given, not just 
Paul, not just the church at Corinth, but you and me today as Christians, by the mercy of God, he's given this to us, we do not lose heart. So whether there's been a point in your life where you've lost heart, or right, you're in the middle of something that's causing you to feel like, I don't know if I can go on, I don't know if I can believe these things. Maybe you're headed into that. As a Jesus follower, if you're a Christian this morning, there's a reason for you not to lose heart. Chapter 4, verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. And I learned a long time ago um, that whenever you see the word, therefore, we should also always ask the question, what is the therefore Therefore, the reason, the way we know what the therefore is, is to look at chapter 3. So in light of whatever Paul is saying in chapter 3, the reasons, whatever comes out of chapter 3 is the reason that you and I should not lose hope, should not lose heart. And so I want to do for just the rest of our time this morning is we're just going to walk through chapter 3. There are seven reasons why we do not lose heart. We may not get to all of them. You can grab them in your notes later on. I'm not going to be able to cover them all in just depth for the sake of time that we have. I'd encourage you, not because I'm awesome, but because God's Word is awesome, to go back and even just kind of look over these things in your own pursuit. So we do not lose heart because in Christ, I give you... Seven different things. We'll walk through the text together. We do not lose heart because in Christ, number one, our lives are letters of grace. Our lives are letters of grace. Verse one, are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so the first reason that we do not lose heart this morning is that our lives are letters of grace. If you're a Jesus follower in this room, your life is a letter of grace being written by God since the day you were born to your salvation and now. It's a letter of grace that God is writing in you and on you for the world to see. Paul, he's writing to the church at Corinth, uh, understanding the context of the passage. It seems like some are disputing his apostleship, his right to be able to say these things. And Paul says, hey, I could bring letters of recommendation. I'm not. Here is the only letter I care about. The letter I care about is your life. Your life, the church of Corinth, and you guys and me— Our lives are letters of God's grace. Everything that's happening in your life today, in the past, the last decade, if you're a Jesus follower, it's a letter of God's unending grace in your life for a watching world to see. So practically, it means this. Our worth and our credibility is not found in what others say about us or in what we say about ourselves but in how God's grace is at work within us. Your worth, your standing, your credibility is not found in what others say about you. Amen? That's good news. Because all kinds of people are going to say all kinds of things about you, but that's not where your value and worth is found. But not only that, our worth and value is not found in what you say about yourself. So all those things that you post about yourself on Instagram and Twitter do not define who you are, right? Facebook. Our worth and value is in what God is doing in us, in you right now. 
So here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. When other people see your life, they are reading a letter of grace and God's grace in you. That's amazing. So just a couple practical things for you and for me. One is be encouraged that your life is not random and by accident. God is at work writing his letter of grace in you right now. And so the difficulty, the joy, whatever you're walking through right now has purpose in it. It's documenting God's grace so that other people can see your life and see him. But here's the second thing for us. As Jesus followers, we must live our lives on display for people to see. So if you and I choose to not be involved in Christian community, in our church we do that through life groups, study groups, if we're not pursuing community, we're not opening our lives up to other people, we are hiding God's letter of grace from others. When instead we should be putting it out for others to participate in it. Or when you go to your workplace, or when you go to your school, or whatever that is, and you choose not to open up your life, and you don't talk about what's happening in you, and you don't talk about what God's doing, you're covering up God's letter of grace for people to see. And so may we be the kind of church, the kind of people that we open our lives up so that people can see in us and see what we're walking through. We can be honest, be real, struggles, failures, you know, we can be who we are in God's People can see God at work in us. So one reason we do not lose heart is because we see there's a bigger story going on in our lives. Number two, another reason that we do not lose heart because in Christ we have an unwavering confidence. We have an unwavering confidence. Look at verse 4. For such is the confidence we have through Christ Jesus toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, The word sufficient is three times here, but our sufficiency is from God. That's a great, that's a great one to underline, circle, highlight, star, you know, highlight with your finger if you have your iPad, whatever you're doing. This is a good one to memorize. We, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, the spirit gives life. So Paul's saying that for you and for me, we have an unwavering confidence. An unwavering confidence. Now, what is that confidence in? Well, the confidence is not in ourselves but it's in Christ Jesus. So if you are a Jesus follower in the room, you can walk confidently in life, not in what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. Practically, it means this. Our sufficiency is not found in our abilities or our inabilities, our accomplishments or our failures, but instead our sufficiency is found in Jesus Christ. Our hearts are prone to bend one of two ways. One is that we think we're awesome. Now, we're in church, so we would never say that. But deep down, we think that. We think we're better than the people around us. We think we're more spiritual than the people around us. We look at our accomplishments, what we've done at work, our kids, how they've turned out well, whatever it is. We think highly of ourselves. That's not what Paul's talking about we have confidence in here. The other bent of our heart is to think very lowly of ourselves. We're terrible, we're inadequate, we're insecure, we can never measure up. That's not what Paul is talking about either. They're both pride. If you think highly of yourself, that's pride. When you think 
lowly about yourself and you think, I'm terrible, I'll never measure up, woe is me, you're still putting the focus on self. It's still pride. Paul is saying we need to remove the focus off of self and put our confidence in Jesus Christ. Because if you're lowly and inadequate, the good news of the gospel is that God comes to rescue you despite all of your failures and inadequacies. You don't do anything It's God's work of grace. If you think really highly of yourself and think you're awesome, let me just tell you, you're not awesome. At best, you're a rebel. You're a sinner. I am. We're we're sinners. We've rejected God's law, but God still comes to rescue us. So our confidence is not in what we've done. Our confidence is not in what we've accomplished. Our confidence is not in what we haven't done or haven't accomplished. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ. And so we can walk confident in what? In the gospel. You can walk confidently into work tomorrow or into school tomorrow and share your faith with the people around you. Why? Because Jesus lives and Jesus reigns and your sufficiency is in Christ. This is hard for me. I would rather not share my faith. I would rather not put myself out there. Why? Because I'm afraid of what will happen to me. I'm not walking in the confidence of Jesus Christ. But one reason we do not lose heart is because we've been given a new confidence. And that confidence is unwavering, and it's unshakable, and it's found in Jesus Christ. So we do not lose heart because our lives are a letter of God's grace on display. We do not lose, conf- we do not lose heart because we've been given a new confidence. Number three, we do not lose heart because we are under a new covenant. We are under a new covenant. Look at verse 6 again. Who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And the key word there is new covenant. In fact, some of your Bibles, the heading of chapter 3 says, ministers of a new covenant. So what's the big deal about the new covenant? Well, it's probably two questions come to mind. They came to my mind. One is, what is a covenant? Number two, what's the difference between the old covenant and new covenant? So really quickly, here's what they are. A covenant is a commitment, a relational commitment between two people. I'm going to be fully committed to you in this area. You're going to be fully committed to me. That's a covenant. It's a promise. It's a promise before God. So it's not a contract. A contract is you do your part, I do my part, I get these things, you get these things. So if you have a cell phone, you have a contract, right? You pay your money, they give you data and the ability to call. You don't pay your money, your line gets cut off, you lose your phone. You know, that kind of thing, get hit with charges. Or if you have a house payment, you make your monthly payment, you get to live in a house. You don't make your monthly payment, you get kicked out of your house, right? You do these things, we give those things. That's a contract. A covenant is a relationship. Marriage is a covenant. It's now a covenant between a man and a woman and God. It's a commitment to one another. So when my wife Katie and I said, I do, nine years ago, we said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, I'm in. I am all in to this. So if I'm in my marriage and I'm thinking of my marriage from a contract standpoint, I could do this. I could go home after this service, um, get home, my wife's in the living room, and look at Katie and say, hey, can you go and can you get where you need to belong in the kitchen and, like, make me some brownies? Like, I'm really hungry. That's your job. I did the trash all week last week. You need to make me some brownies. What do you think's going to happen to me when I get home? I'm going to be on the couch, broken arm, broken face. Something's going on that's not working, right? Well, why? 
because I'm approaching my marriage from a contractual standpoint. I did this. This is my responsibility. You need to do these things. That's not the way a marriage works. A marriage, biblically, is not you come 50%, I come 50%. A covenantal relationship is I go 100% whether you do anything at all. Right? It should be 100%, 100%. But when I married my wife, I committed to her to say, I'm going to be 100% into you whether you give me anything back. That's what a covenant is. And that's what God did with the children of Israel. He went into a covenantal relationship with them. Old Testament. God said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will take care of you. You will love and follow me. Children of Israel entered into that with God. The problem is God always kept the covenant, but the children of Israel never could. They always fell short. They always messed up. They always broke God's law. They always ran away. So when Paul talks about being a minister of a new covenant, where he's getting that from is from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So I just want to read these verses. This is what God says. Knowing that Israel has failed the old covenant, God makes this promise to his people. Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There those words are again. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, there's the marriage picture, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying to each his brother, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord." For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So here's the big deal. God promised a new covenant. Paul's talking about a new covenant. What is the new covenant? God's commitment to his people, he fulfills. God's people could never fulfill the commitment. So God sent his son to become a person to meet the commitment of the covenant. So Jesus fulfills the covenant. Sinless life, perfect death, in our place. So he is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So we are part of a new covenant. What is the new covenant? Hang with me. Hang with me. In the new covenant, we get to be in relationship with God, not because of what we do for God, but because of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, you are ministers of the new covenant. You don't have to earn your way to God. God came to you. That is fantastic news this morning for us, church. You don't have to try, try, try so hard so that God will love you. God has loved you, and so we obey him because he first loved us. Practically, it means this. Our relationship with God is not based on our ability to obey his law, but upon Jesus' ability to perfectly obey in our place. So there's freedom in the new covenant because we get to serve God out of joy, out of delight instead of duty. This is good news for us, so we do not lose heart. Just think about it. If, if you and I had to earn our favor with God and keep the relationship all on our own by our good deeds and good merit, who in here would lose heart? I know I would because I could never achieve it. But Paul's saying we do not lose heart. Why? Because Jesus has made it possible for us to be in right relationship with God. So we're ministers of this new covenant. 
in light of what he has done for us. It's beautiful. We do not lose heart, fourthly, because we are a part of the ministry of glory. We are a part of the ministry of glory. Verses 7 through 11 say this, Now if the ministry of death, now this is the second time he's talked about ministry. We saw it in verse 6, ministers of a new covenant. So this is what Paul's saying is true of him, true of the church in Corinth, but true of you if you're a Jesus follower. We are ministers of a new covenant. Verse 7, The ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the spirits, there it is again, have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, there it is again, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it surpasses its important. For if what, we've, what, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more, what is permanent will have glory. What in the world is going on here? Okay, so what's he talking about? Well, for us to understand it, we need to understand Exodus 34, and I'm not going to take the time to read it, but you go back on your own. Exodus 34 is the story uh, from the children of Israel. Uh, they've sinned. They worship the golden calf. God's going to wipe them out. Moses pleads on their behalf. God says, okay, I will not destroy them. Moses goes up on the mountaintop to see God. He says, show me your glory. God says, no, you cannot see my face. If you see my face, you will die. And so Moses gets to be part of something that is unique and that God lets his glory pass by Moses and Moses is able to see his back. Then God gives Moses the law and the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. Moses comes back down the mountain. As he comes down the mountain, he is literally glowing, okay? I don't know about you, if you're like walking outside to take the trash out tonight, it's dark, and like your neighbor's walking up to you and they're glowing like a light bulb, uh, you're probably going to move the other direction, right? Is this radiation? Like what's going on? That's weird. People don't normally glow, And so Moses comes down off the mountain glowing, and so they cover him up with a veil because it's freaking everybody out. Like, they don't know what to do with this thing because he's seen God. And so this is what Paul's talking about in this passage, the ministry of glory. He's saying, if Moses saw God and was given the law, and we know that the law is insufficient to save us. Why? Because we cannot keep the law. So if that ministry was so glorious, and the word glory means weight or beauty, and the word glory, it shows up 11 times in these four verses. If it's so glorious and so beautiful, Paul's saying, how much more will be the ministry of glory that you and I are a part of today? What is the ministry of glory? The ministry of glory is the new covenant. It's the gospel. So what does that mean for us practically? The ministry of glory. Our ministry is not dead and dying, but instead alive, spirit-filled, and glorious. So just a couple practical takeaways for you this morning that I want you to think about and chew on. One is this. Paul is saying that if you are a Jesus follower in this room, you are a minister. You have been given a ministry. Ministry and ministers are not just guys on a church staff. It's us. We have been given the ministry. What is the ministry? The new covenant. 
telling people and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. You're a minister, and I'm a minister. But here's the good part, and that's awesome, but this makes it even more awesome. It's the ministry of glory. What does that mean? It's not fading. It's not dying. How many of you have gotten discouraged when you turn on the news? See what's happening around the world. See the way people are rejecting God. Sometimes it seems like we're headed in such a bad direction, like, can God ever do anything? But what what did Jesus say? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The battle's been won. We've been given a ministry that's already been accomplished. We've been given a victory that's already assured for us. So this is good news, church. The gospel is not going down. God's truth is going out around the world. It's not defeated. It's not dying. It's not disappearing. It's growing. It will continue to grow until Jesus comes back again and splits the skies open. That is our ministry. We're not on the losing team. We're on the winning team. So we walk in confidence into our homes, into our families, into our workplaces, into our communities. Why? Because the battle has been won. And we don't save the work for the pastor, for the church. You and I, we are the ministers of grace. We are the church. We are the people of God. We carry the message. And it is a ministry of glory and weight. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Because we fight from victory for victory. Maybe it feels like you're dying today. Maybe things around you are caving in. The ministry that God's given you, will endure because it's greater than your life. And that is good news for us. Keep going. We do not lose heart because we are, or sorry, the veil has been removed. We do not lose heart because the veil has been removed. Verses 12 through 16. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, right? Because we're part of the ministry of glory. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So Paul's making a shift. He's saying back in Moses' time, their hearts were hardened. But even now today, people's hearts are hardened to the gospel. Yes, to this day, verse 15, Moses, the law, is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is removed. So this is the beautiful truth of the gospel. If you are a Jesus follower this morning, the veil has been removed. What is the veil? The veil is our spiritual blindness that keeps us from seeing Jesus for who he is in the gospel. The veil has been removed. If you're a Christian in this room, a Jesus follower, you placed your faith in Christ. You used to be dead in sin. Paul's saying you were blinded to the gospel. Later on in chapter 4, he'll say the God of this age has blinded the eyes of people from seeing the beauty and glory of Christ. But God has pulled back the veil on your cold, dead heart to see the beauty of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you placed your faith in Jesus. What was keeping you from Christ has been removed by the grace of God. Why? How? Grace. 
Do you remember who you were before you were a believer? Do you remember what Christ did? If you look back on that day, remember what he did to raise you to life in Christ. So, a couple practical things for us this morning. One is this, our hearts are no longer hardened to the gospel. We're in Christ. But instead, we see God for who he really is. We see ourselves for who we really are. If the veil has been removed, one is a question that should come to your mind. Why me? This is the question I ask when I read this text. Why me? Why, God, was I born in a Christian home? Why, God, was I raised in a church that loved you? Why did I get to see the gospel? Why have you pulled back the veil on my eyes? Why was I not born in Syria or in some slum where I never could have heard the good news of the gospel? Why was I born here? Why have you saved me out of all the people on the earth? Why have you saved me? And the answer is grace. I don't know. I don't know. I know what's inside of me. I know what's in my heart. I know what I've done and thought. And I don't deserve to be saved, but for some reason God has pulled back the veil to let me see the beauty of the gospel, and I'm, I'm a believer now. That should amaze us. That should stir something within us if you're a Christian. But it also means that there are people, probably in this room, but definitely here in your lives, who the veil is covering their hearts and eyes from seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. heard the gospel. He's talking about people who knew the law. He's not talking about people who've never heard. He's talking about people who knew the law of Moses. A veil lies over their hearts. They can't see Christ. And so it should put a burden within us, church, for our friends, for our family members, our co-workers who they can't see. It's not that they're ignorant. It's not that they just can't get it. It's not if they just had another lecture or could watch a, an apologetics class. They're blind, They are spiritually blind. They cannot see. And unless, as it says here, only through Jesus Christ can the veil be taken away. Unless Christ removes it to see the beauty of the gospel, they can't. And so we need to pray. We need to go. We need to share so that people can see Christ, that God removed the veil. So we do not lose heart. Why? Because you've been saved. Your life can be terrible. But if you're in Jesus, you're saved. You've been saved. You've received grace. You have an eternity and a hope in Christ Jesus. That's why we don't lose heart. Two more, real quick. We do not lose heart because we are free from the power of sin. Verse 17. Now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I'm I'm not going to spend much time here. Here's the point. Our hearts... Our affections are no longer in bondage to sin, but instead free in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom to do whatever you want to do. Freedom to live however you want to live. Freedom to participate in any kind of sin that's out there. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from sin. There is freedom from the veil. Brothers and sisters, I love you. I care about you. If you are a believer, if you're a Jesus follower, sin has no hold on you anymore. Sin has no power on you anymore. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Lust, addiction, anger, insecurity, worry, doubt, all these things, they have no power over you. And yet we live, we become slaves to sin when we should be free in Christ. 
So brother, sister, I just tell you this morning, you're free, and for some of you, you're struggling in things that you need to just obey Christ. You need to yield to Him. You need to grab a brother or sister and say, help me fight the good fight on this. Become who you are. Cling to what's true of you in Christ Jesus. Pray that the Holy Spirit would remove these things from you and help you fight the fight. Lean heavily into His Word. Sin has no hold on you anymore. John Owen, a Puritan pastor, said this, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Somebody's dying. It's sin hurts our hearts. It's a battle. Wage the good warfare. Lastly, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart because we are free. We do not lose heart because we are beholding. We are beholding. And I know that's kind of a weird phrase, but look at verse 18. And I would encourage you to memorize and meditate on this verse. And we all, everybody who's a Jesus following in this room, with unveiled face, beholding, there's our word, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You and I are progressively becoming more like Jesus day by day through the power of the Holy Spirit. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We all with one veiled face, unveiled face, are beholding. The word beholding means to look at a reflection. So there's two things happening in beholding. One is that you are looking. The fight of faith is a fight to see. It's to see Jesus for who he really is. Every single day, you and I need to fight to see Jesus, to look into the Word, to pray, to pursue him. All throughout the Gospels, we see this call, sight, see, see. The disciples, they could see, but they couldn't really see. The Pharisees, they saw the signs, but they didn't believe. They didn't have sight. And so one of the things I've been praying, and I'd ask you to pray for me, is Jesus, help me to see you for who you are. Help me to see life the way you saw life. Help me to see people the way you see people. Jesus, help me to see your word the way you see your word. Give me sight to see you. So beholding is looking at Christ. And it's not, I used to kind of have the perspective that it's kind of like a phone. You know, you charge your phone, your phone battery starts to die, so you plug it into the wall and you get recharged. That's the way I saw kind of my spiritual life. I, I go, I read God's Word, I pray, I get charged up, now I go out and live. When I get depleted, I plug myself back into the source. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that you never unplug yourself from the source. All day long, we look at God's Word. All day long, we pray. All day long, we fix our gaze at Christ. And so beholding, it's looking, but beholding, it's a reflection. And so it's, it's a picture of a mirror. And so most of us look at the mirror multiple times a day. When you got up this morning, you probably looked in a mirror. And when you look in a mirror, what do you see? You see yourself. If you woke up this morning, you look in the mirror, and you saw me staring back at you. That's a bad day, right? That's a bad morning. Smash that mirror. Get rid of that. Don't bring that one back because that's, that doesn't work, right? So when you look into a mirror, you see a reflection. What he's saying here is that we with unveiled face, the veil has been removed. So we are seeing clearly Christ. When we look at Christ, we are the mirror. We look at Christ. What is reflected? Jesus. So the more you and I look at Jesus, we reflect Jesus to the watching world to see. So what you fix your gaze on is what you reflect to the world. 
So if you fix your gaze on your career, what the world will see that is most important about you is your career. If you fix your gaze on football or sports, what the world will see that you care the most about, what's most important to you is sports. If you fix your gaze on your kids, their success, their happiness, all those things, what the world's going to see that matters most to you is your kids. What Paul is saying, we with unveiled face are to fix our eyes on Christ. And as we fix our eyes on the Savior, the world sees the Savior. The world sees the Savior at work in us. The gospel gets put on display. And so as we fix our gaze on Christ, the world sees Jesus. And our job becomes about Jesus. And our football and our sports become about Jesus. And our ministry to our kids is all about Jesus. It's not about them, it's about Him. And so we do not lose heart. Why? Because if you are a Jesus follower, you are progressively, day by day, becoming more and more and more like Christ. So we do not lose heart. I have three kids. Jack, Evie, and Camden. I have a picture of Camden. Some of you guys have met him. Some of you guys have not. This is Camden. Camden's awesome. Um, He's going on a year and a half. He doesn't communicate really well. Um, But one thing he does know is he does not like going to the doctor. Because when you go to the doctor, at his stage of life, it means pain, right? I can remember taking Jack uh, the first time to the doctor and him getting his first shots and the look of betrayal and sadness across his face. I'm like, I'm going to punch that nurse for doing this to you kind of thing. Camden's right there. We're taking him to the doctor often. I am a source of his pain. Okay? I'm the one taking him to the doctor. He could run from me, but guess what he does? He runs to me. Even though I'm the one causing it, he comes to me. Why? Because he knows I love him. Because he knows I'm pursuing him. Because he knows I'm for him. And you know what? I don't even understand it. My kids want to be like me, like their father. Why? Because they know that I love them. They, they want to be like me. So even in the pain that he has to go through as an infant... He still pursues me. Why? Because he knows I love him. He wants to be like me. This is the way the Apostle Paul says it. We'll end with this and the team can come up. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Lean into this, friends. So we do not lose heart. Why? Because we have a loving Father who is pursuing us. A loving Father who is working for our good. A loving Father who is progressively making us more and more like Christ. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this, listen to how he says this, this light, momentary affliction is preparing us For an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is good news. This light momentary... This is the guy talking. He's been beaten with rods. He's been beaten. He's been thrown in jail. He's been in prison. He's been shipwrecked. Robbers, toil, major suffering. He's saying this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. 
as we look not to things that are seen, what is around us, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Because we have a God who sent his son to rescue us, and our identity is in Jesus Christ, and we are being made like Jesus day by day, brothers and sisters, we do not lose heart. You can bow your head and close your eyes as we respond now. A lot to take in. For you this morning, it might just be to trust that you came in doubting. Is God working for my good? Is God for my good? Is God for my glory? I'm a Jesus follower, but I have my doubts. Maybe for you this morning, it's just to trust. God, I'm not going to lose heart. I'm going to trust your promises. I'm going to trust what, what you've called me to. For some, it's to see your life as a letter of grace. And it's about opening your life up so more people can see it. For some, it's walking in confidence instead of pride, walking into the things God's called you to. For others, it's understanding what it means to be a part, to be a minister, that you are a minister, that you carry the new covenant, you carry the gospel with you, and becoming who you are. For some, it's just reveling in the fact that the veil has been removed, that God has rescued you, shown you grace. Maybe it's to pray about people in this room who you know, or people in your life who the veil has not been removed, that God would remove the veil, God would give you boldness to share the gospel. Maybe it's to sit there and just praise God that there's freedom in Christ from sin. Maybe it's to grab a brother or sister and say, fight with me. I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you to free me from these things. Maybe it's just to rejoice in the fact that you are progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And maybe for some in this room, the veil has just been removed today, this week. For the first time, you knew about God's word. You've heard the gospel. For the first time, it's become real to you. That you've seen your sin. You've seen that Jesus is your Savior. You want to trust in him and follow him and live for him. We want to help you do that. And before you leave, you can go out these doors and meet someone and say, I need Jesus. I need to be saved. I want to follow Christ. I want to have hope and not lose heart. We would love to talk to you about that. So this time is your time. It's a time to respond time we're going to sing and worship. It might be time for you just to pray there where you are, to examine your heart. And so we give ourselves to the Lord. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are the God who's come to rescue us. You're the God who's raised us to life. Help us to live in light of raised lives. Help us to live like people who have not lost heart because our hope is in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.